we'll uh, invite our kids uh, to head out around to Sweet D for their teaching time as we dive into the Word. If uh, today is maybe your first time at Freedom or your first time that you've been here in a while, it's good to have you today. Uh, We're going to be diving into a series that we've been in through most of the winter where we're talking about the path of progress, where we're looking at how the spiritual disciplines become for us God's avenue for us to be positioned to experience not only greater intimacy with Him, but to really access more of His grace and His power to change how we live our lives. And so early on we talked about the inner disciplines of things like prayer and meditation, fasting and study. And now we're down to talking about the outward disciplines, ways that we live differently out in the world. And so today we're going to be talking about the discipline of service. Uh, The song that we just uh, sang was a perfect setup to this. Because when you think about what Christian faith is all about, love is the heart of it all. I mean, Jesus made that abundantly clear, didn't he, when he said that first and foremost it's about loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second commandment's like the first, and that is that you should love your neighbor as you love yourself. In fact, this is the tangible way that you love God is you love people. And remember that love isn't a feeling word, it's an active word, the New Testament word agape for love. It's a commitment to meet the needs of others. So really, practically speaking, how do you love God? By loving and serving people around you. And so what we're talking about today is the heart of that. The discipline of of constantly serving others. Jesus said that this becomes the true pathway to greatness. In fact, that this is the mark of greatness in how you serve one another. In uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus sat down and called his 12 disciples over to him. And he said this. This is just one of those uh, to shake the, the whole world, turn it upside down kind of statements. He said, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else let me say that again whoever wants to be first must take what last place and be the servant of everyone else jesus reiterated this truth again and again if you want to be great you've got to be willing to take last place have you ever had any experience with last place you ever had to deal with coming in last One of the most vivid memories of my middle school experience, which I have done my best to just obliterate my memory of middle school. Those were the dark years. Anybody else just hate middle school? Man, I like school, but I hated middle school. Oh, that that was tough. Elementary school was fine. In elementary school, I was popular. I always had a girlfriend. The guys always liked me. Elementary school was good. Middle school was hellish. Because in middle school, all of my friends were doing what middle schoolers do. They were experimenting with drugs and sex and partying and all that kind of stuff. And I wasn't going to be a part of that. And so I, I, not only did I not take part in it, I was the obnoxious kid who railed against it. <laughs> I loved Jesus too much to do that. And I was going to get in your face and tell you, you know, how wrong that stuff was way, way too freely. And so I went from being very popular to being very unpopular, not just with my guy friends, but with the girls. And I went from, you know, Always having my pick of the girls in elementary school to no girl wanted anything to do with me in middle school. And so by the time I was in eighth grade, just really feeling pretty low about myself. 
And I will never forget the day in eighth grade that a messenger came to me. You remember how this worked in, in middle school? That if a boy and a girl wanted to express anything affectionate toward one another, you had to send a messenger. You know, you either send a note or you send a messenger. So a little girl in seventh grade, she was a year younger, but she was cute, so it was okay. A little girl sent her messenger to me that she wanted to know if I would be her escort for the upcoming beauty pageant. Now I'll tell you, there haven't been many eighth grade boys ever less interested in a beauty pageant than I was, but suddenly I was very interested because for the first time in a while, a little girl had some remote interest in me, and so I was thrilled, even though beauty pageant didn't sound very cool, just to know that there was a cute little girl who had an interest in me, and that was part of what the messenger communicated, you know, there's more to this than just wanting you to escort her, but, you know, she's asking if you would ask her because she thinks, you know, you're kind of nice, and so... I'm excited. Yes, I will. And so, you know, it's it's silly how in middle school this stuff unfolds because in the weeks leading up to this beauty pageant, seriously, I bet we didn't speak ten sentences to one another. But we did the whole awkward middle school thing in the hallway of like, oh, you know, she's cute. I'm going to get to, you know, have her on my arm that night. And that all sounded wonderful right up until we got to the point of the thing. And I discovered at the last minute this piece of awful information that I had not grasped early on. It's not just a beauty pageant. It is a beauty and bow contest. Who ever heard of such? What does that even mean? It was lost on me. Well, let me tell you, I found out real fast what that means. It means they're not just judging the girls. They're judging the boys separately. I did not sign up for a beauty contest. I have a face made for radio, not for beauty pageants. And... So, you know, we get there. I want to tell you, as much as I had been excited about this, I don't even remember seeing that girl that night. I mean, yes, I escorted her, did the whole thing. I have no idea what she wore. The whole night is just one emotional black hole in my soul that left a scar. I, have, I, I don't know if she won or lost or came in third place. I have no idea. I only remember one thing about that night. When they were judging the boys... They didn't just give out the first place prize. They gave prizes for every level all the way down to last place. You want to take a wild guess where the preacher landed? I came in last place in the middle school beauty and bow contest. I'm still trying to get over it. Woo! That's tough. That's tough on an eighth grade psyche. I still get a little tied up in knots thinking about that night. Last place. Jesus said, he who wants to be first must choose to be last. I think about that night and think, who on earth would choose to be last? Why would Jesus say choosing to be last is a key to greatness? Let me tell you, I didn't choose to be last. I'd have given all the money I had in the bank to be anything other than last on that night. What's the... The secret or the magic about choosing to be last. Well, nobody would want to choose to feel what I felt on that night. We've all had our last place moments, haven't we? You may not have come in last place in a beauty contest, but we've all had our last place experiences. Why would anybody choose that? Well, in that silly example that I just gave, the only reason you'd ever want to choose that would be to honor the others around you and to ensure that nobody else had to feel the pain and humiliation that I felt on that particular night. 
It's pretty much the only reason that you'd want to do that, isn't it? You see, that becomes a little picture of the bigger truth that Jesus is talking about. We don't choose to be last because we have a terrible self-image or because we want to dishonor ourselves. We choose to be last or to be second place when it is a you know, one-on-one situation because we want to honor the other person. What I want to share with you this morning are five truths about what it means to serve and honor others. And then I want to just quickly talk with you through seven different examples of how we're called to serve and honor others and and how to live a life of service to others that Jesus has called us to. And so we're just going to dive right into the deep end of the pool about Christian service, the discipline of service. And the first one is this, to just realize that Jesus didn't seek to rearrange the human pecking order. He sought to abolish it. He didn't came to, to clean it up. He came to blow it up. You realize we're like a bunch of chickens in a cage, don't you? It's funny. In our small group, we hear a lot about chickens because we've got some, a couple of different families that raise chickens in our small group. So we, we hear about the, the life of the chickens. <laughs> Leon and Becky both have always taken good care of their, their chickens. Isn't it true of chickens that there's always a pecking order? There's always a lead chicken. There's a there's the big chicken. The funny thing is chickens will know who's number one and who's dead last and everything in between. Chickens have got to figure this out. They've got to fight this out. Human beings aren't very different. We've always got a pecking order. You put a group of humans together for any length of time, we'll find some way of measuring ourselves against one another, won't we? Now, we may not say it out loud, but mentally we'll do it. It may be figuring out who's the best looking and who's the ugliest. It may be who's got the most money, who's got the the least money, who's got the best looking spouse, the worst looking spouse, whatever it is. We'll figure out some criteria for a pecking order, won't we? We figure out how to measure ourselves against each other. And hopefully we'll find in that some rationale for propping ourselves up and feeling better about ourselves. And Jesus came To blow up our plan for a pecking order. Now, I want to be clear on this. Jesus did not blow up the concept of authority or of leadership. God himself is the one who created those concepts. He ordained those things. There's always supposed to be chain of authority and and leadership. He's not destroying that. What he's doing is blowing up our social pecking order. Hear what Jesus said in Matthew 20. Jesus called them together and said, You know what the rulers in the, that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your everybody say it together. Your slave. For even the Son of Man, that's how Jesus most often referred to himself, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Those are pretty challenging words, aren't they? Jesus is just acknowledging the way things work. He said, you understand in the pagan world, people with authority love having authority. And they love to flex their muscle. They, they love to make it clear who it is that is beneath them. Every culture, this is the case. People love having some type of status that elevates them above others. Now, it may be money. It may be you know, power. It, it, it may be the size of your house or the car that you drive. But we find ways of elevating ourselves above other people. And Jesus said, it's natural in the world that people want to use that as a way of feeling better than others. But he says, it can't be that way with you. And in fact, 
with you, it needs to be the reverse of that. You need to turn that whole concept upside down. If you want to be great, this is the only way in the sight of God for you to be great. You must choose to serve others instead of being above others. The truth is, the world operates on a pyramid principle. A lot of businesses operate on that, too. You, you, everybody is familiar with the whole pyramid scheme in marketing, right? We've probably all at some point of desperation had to, had to sign on and be a part of a pyramid scheme. And you know the whole idea of advancing in the pyramid, don't you? You've got to get as many people as you can beneath you that you're going to draw a percentage of their take. So you, you've got to work your way up higher and higher in the pyramid to make more money off of what all the people underneath you are producing. So... You know, the whole pyramid scheme is get, an, get close enough to the top and you'll make a lot of money and you'll be making it off of all the people beneath you. Well, socially, we operate the same way. The world sees and, and teaches in a thousand different ways that there's a pyramid. And you don't want to be on the lowest levels of the pyramid. Those are the people who are whatever. They're the ugliest or they're the poorest or they're, you know, they're the worst of something. They are the lowest and you always want to climb higher in the pyramid, don't you? Everybody wants to be further up this thing. I know we're Christians, so we don't think that way, right? Yes, we do too. Everybody wants to get higher in the pyramid. You want to be at a place where you're prettier, you got more money, you got more power, you're higher in the company. Everybody wants to get closer to the top because life is more comfortable at the top. Other people serve you. Other people are beneath you. They look up to you and they admire you. And here's what Jesus said. You know, the world says, this is greatness. Get as close as you can to the top of the pyramid. And Jesus came along and said, well, here's what I will tell you about my thoughts on the pyramid. I want to turn the whole thing upside down. And tell you that greatness comes from being the person who sees everyone else, great or small, as being someone that, that I should serve. And a willingness to actively serve others is the mark of greatness. Now I'll point out just as an aside, really interesting thing. This isn't an opinion, this is a fact. When you think about where people land in that great pyramid, the great social pyramids of life, where do you think suicides are the least common? Interesting observation. The lowest level has the lowest suicide rate. You want to know where the highest suicide rate is? Yeah, you saw this coming now. Absolutely, it's at the top of the pyramid. We expect it to be the reverse of that, don't we? By nature, we think the people who are the ugliest, the poorest, the weakest, the, you know, the worst jobs, the lowest income, whatever it is that defines the lowly life that we don't want to have, surely they're the ones living in despair, right? It's the people who get to the top who can be really happy. Nope. The lowest suicide rates are among the poorest. The highest suicide rates are consistently among those at the very top. You see, they climb and climb and climb. And when they finally get there, they look around and realize the thing that was supposed to bring them such joy and fulfillment and happiness was completely empty. And while you've climbed over everyone else, you arrive to find you're at a place where you feel incredibly alone and unfulfilled. And so many times people just despair when they get there. Jesus understood this. Jesus understood that the truly happy people in life are those who discover the joy of serving others. 
You see, when you turn the pyramid upside down and you realize that those who arrive at the apex, they're not above everyone else. They put everyone else above themselves and they serve everyone else. It's in a life of serving that real happiness and satisfaction are found. Jesus didn't come to slightly reform the system. He came to abolish it. That's good news, isn't it? I don't think when I look around the room, I see a bunch of social climbers who've arrived at the top. That's not who we are, is it? Well, there's good news. You don't have to climb to be great. You just have to serve. The second truth is this. If we're truly to be servants in the sense that Jesus teaches, we must guard against self-righteous service. Now, this is a real warning from Jesus. You can intentionally become a person who, who does things to serve others. And still completely miss the boat and actually kind of waste your time serving others if you're not very careful about how you serve. Hear what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6.1. He said, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. This is a real warning for us. When you serve, it's very, very tempting to serve in a way that is designed to benefit the person doing the serving. You know what I'm talking about? You ever find yourself tempted to do it that way? And Jesus said, the only way to really guard against that is to let most of your service be done where nobody knows what you've done. That you just do it as privately as you possibly can. Now I want to just give you an opportunity to sort of test yourself out on this. So I want you to, to use your hands to, to measure yourself in this. And so you, you just... You don't have to indicate which is which, but you just get both of your hands ready now, all ten fingers ready. All right, you pick which hand is going to be the self-righteous hand and which hand is going to be the true servant hand. Because as you count these up, that way your neighbor won't know which, whether you're doing well or doing really poorly. So I'm going to name off six pairs of contrasting ideas. And it's going to contrast self-righteous service versus true Christian service. And if what I say in a pair, if you sound more self-righteous, then you, you pick up a finger on the self-righteous hand. And if you sound more like the true servant, you give yourself credit over here. And you just keep score and see where you land, okay? Everybody with me? All right, number one. Self-righteous service tends to calculate and scheme and try and figure out how to get credit for what it does or how it can gain some advantage by doing that. And true service just comes in simple response to divine promptings. That it's just, the only reason I'm doing this is because I felt God calling me to do this. All right. There ought to be a finger going up on one side or the other. Number two, self-righteous service seeks to impress, to do impressive, big things that make a big difference. True Christian service pays little or no attention to how big or small a deed is. It just really, in fact, enjoys doing small things. Number three. Self-righteous service needs to be noticed, rewarded, or appreciated. It actually secretly loves applause, but it feigns modesty. It pretends to be so modest, oh, I don't need to be recognized for doing that. But the truth of the matter is it hates not being recognized when it does something. True Christian service is content to remain hidden. All it really seeks is the divine nod of approval that God noticed and was pleased. Number four. Self-righteous service is concerned with results and really wants to know deep down inside that that kind of service is at some point going to be reciprocated. I mean, if I do this for you, I certainly expect in my time of need you're going to do it back for me, right? True Christian service 
has no interest in calculating results or having things reciprocated. Number five, self-righteous service. This is very telling. Self-righteous service is very much affected by moods. It can only serve when it's in the mood, and it is particularly impacted by lack of sleep. If I'm tired, i got time to fool with other people. All I can worry about today is me. I'm just too tired to worry about anybody else. Whereas on the other hand, Christian service, a follower of Christ will use the discipline of service to discipline its own moods. In other words, I've got to train myself to not be controlled by moods or fatigue. And so I'll use the discipline of service to reel that in. Number six. Self-righteous service is often about the glorification of the individual and is very willing to sort of mentally put others into their debt and to even use that as a subtle form of manipulation. True Christian service, it just builds community and it builds others up even while it's serving them. How you doing? You keep score on that? How'd you fare in that? I ran out of fingers on, on, on one hand, just about it. That's a, that's a pretty tough test, but it's what Jesus said we need to guard against. There's a, a way of serving others that's actually still about what I'm going to get out of that. And Jesus said, serve others for what it is. It's a way of loving God by loving and serving them. Third truth is this. True servants choose to make themselves the servants of all. Remember again the opening line from Jesus. Whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. True servants, true Christian servants, are willing to serve friends or enemies. You see, there's a level of embracing the concept of service that says, I, I want to have control. I want to have control of who I serve and how I serve and be very selective about that. That's my nature, by the way. I'm just being honest. I want to be in control of, of who I serve and when I serve. Jesus is calling us to a life of service where we don't try and pick and choose. We're just here to serve the world because it's how we serve Christ. How do you get there? I mean, realistically, how do you get from being born selfish to being that selfless in serving others. Paul talked about it in terms of becoming a bond slave. Becoming a bond servant. That's not a term we use today. In fact, anything that involves the word slave, we think of as a bad thing. And in the New Testament, it's amazing how that would be tied to the concept of Christianity. That Paul would talk about himself as a bond slave. The interesting thing about a bond slave is you weren't born in slavery you choose to become a lifelong servant of another person, even though you're a free person. You make a once and for all commitment, and they actually, you know, back you up to the door, and they drive something through your ear to mark you that you are, by your choice, you're going to be the slave of someone else. You're going to serve them for the rest of your life. Paul said we should be those kinds of bond slaves, bond servants. Well, why would we want that? I mean, we know about all the evils of slavery, so why would someone choose to put themselves in that position? He's making a point about the different perspective that a slave has over a free person. You see, as free people, we're always worried about our rights, aren't we? We want to defend our rights. And the really scary thing that we looked at last week is to be a follower of Jesus means you yield your rights. You deny yourself and you choose to follow Christ in the cross life where 
You've given up all rights. I'm a dead man. It's a very similar concept when he says you need to become a bond slave. The bond slave, from, you know, a slave gets this. They don't have any rights to defend. They are born to serve. The rest of us are wanting to be elevated to a position where others will serve us. The slave's born into service, and he just goes through life thinking, that that's why I exist. I exist to serve others. Paul said, we adopt a mindset that says, I don't have any rights to defend. I live to serve others. This is the Christ life, the life of self-sacrifice. Fourth truth. True service crucifies our fleshly desires and replaces them with humility. In Luke 14, Jesus said, When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not sit in the best place. Instead, when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place. For those who make themselves great will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be made great. I referenced this last week. If you weren't here last week, just a quick reminder. That the situation that Jesus is talking about is one that we don't exactly have an equivalent for today, and yet it was very common in Jewish culture. If you went to a wedding banquet or pretty much any kind of social gathering where there would be a formal meal, there would be a head of the table where the, the most honored person, the honored guest or the host would sit, and they would arrange the whole table where the closer you were to the host, the more important you were considered. And to be at the far end of the table meant that you were the least important person in the room. And Jesus said what no one naturally practiced. He said, when you go to a gathering like that, here's a tangible way to express what I'm talking about. He says, you choose to go and sit at the other end of the table. He's saying, I know what people always do. They're trying to see how close to the... To the person of honor they can be because they feel more special by that. And he said, you just choose to put other people ahead of you and you sit at the low position at the table honoring those. But just said, no, no, you take the seat closer to the head. I'll, I'll take the seat closer to the foot of the table. You humble yourself in that regard. This isn't human nature at all, is it? You know, it's interesting the little things that we'll say that become almost cliches. In, it becomes just part of Christian lingo that the world has no clue what we're talking about. And the funny thing is, half the time in the church, I think we don't know what we're talking about when we throw around our, our little Christian cliches. And even the, when they have good roots to them, like the concept of crucifying your flesh. That's, that's one I heard a lot growing up. I mean, you just got to crucify your flesh. And it's like, yeah, well, we've all heard that. We all know that. How in the world do you do that? How on earth do you crucify the flesh? It's a really good question because we're all eaten up with it. We've all got a terminal case of the flesh, don't we? I mean, we are just so eaten up with it. What, what do we mean when we talk about the flesh? We talk about just all that is base and corrupt in our nature. Everything in me that wants to put me first and serve me and wants to have my way. All that's just all about me with little regard or no regard for you or the kingdom of God or what God would want. How do you put that thing to death? There aren't many things that will do it as effectively as serving others will. And it will not only crucify the flesh, in place of the flesh, it will leave behind the marks of the Christian character trait of humility. Humility is a really peculiar character trait because it's that thing that you never get by actively pursuing it. You ever think about that one? You can't get humility by actively pursuing humility. Think about it. What are you working on right now? Well, I'm working on being humble. I'm making pretty good progress, too. That doesn't work, does it? 
You don't get it by actively pursuing it. It has to be like the result of something else that's going on in your life. You see, when you seek to serve others, this wonderful surprise side benefit is you learn humility. Jesus is saying this. When you honor others, you wind up learning to humble yourself. You learn humility in the process. I'll tell you kind of a a humorous great irony in the scripture. I'm not dishonoring the word of God when I say this. It's okay to laugh even at the word sometimes. Do you remember the statement that's made in the Old Testament, made in the Pentateuch? In the ancient world, the scripture tells us who the most humble man on earth was at the time. Do you remember who it was? Moses. The scripture says explicitly that Moses was the meekest, the most humble man on earth. Now that's a surprising thing when you consider that he was the leader of two million people. He's the leader of an entire nation. He is, he's in this position of honor, and yet he's the humblest man. Now, that by itself is, is enough of a surprise, right? But here's the great humorous irony of that whole thing. Do you know who wrote the words that Moses was the meekest, most humble man on earth? Moses wrote it. Think about that one for a minute. Isn't that a disqualifier or something? That's, but I guess he was. Go home and ponder that one. When we choose to honor others and to serve others, to act for their good, and when we do it in secret without light shining on us, there is a deep and profound change that takes place in us. It does to our flesh what our will cannot do. You cannot by your willpower destroy your fleshly nature and yet when you choose to serve others there is this deep and profound change that begins to take place now i'm going to warn you as if you didn't already know this your flesh hates and will despise to put into practice what i'm talking about today richard foster puts it this way he says the flesh whines against service but it screams against hidden service isn't that the truth In other words, like, my fleshly nature doesn't really want to serve other people. It wants to just do whatever I want to do today. But I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. So I'll do the Christian thing and I'll choose to serve others. But I want a pat on the back. I want somebody to notice. I'll work it into a sermon sometime. Make sure you you knew about what I did. You know know what I'm talking about? Got to shine some little light. Oh, I didn't mean for that to come out. Oh, well, I guess you now know what a great servant I am. The flesh isn't crazy about serving, but it will scream and pitch a fit silently over having to serve in secret. Do you know why it squirms and screams so much? Because it is being crucified. And as it is being put to death, the life of Christ, that is the embodiment of humility, takes its place. Service becomes the pathway to crucifying the flesh And letting humility become a reality in our lives. And as the flesh dies and humility grows, this is a fact. You will not discover more misery, more gloom. No, what you'll find is a greater zest, joy, and optimism about life than you've ever known before. And oh, by the way, you'll find a greater joy in just loving God and living in a relationship with Him than you've ever known in your life. Fifth truth. Now, when you think about this, when you consider putting into practice all that we're talking about, it has to bring to mind a question at some point. 
And, and here's the biggest question. If I do this, I mean, if I really try to live the kind of life that you're describing, won't people take advantage of me? I mean, isn't that a concern? If I really live to serve others, people are going to exploit that. Don't you think? Yes, they will. And that is the fifth truth. A lifestyle of service means that others will sometimes totally take advantage of us. Yes, they will. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4.13, When they tell evil lies about us, we speak nice words about them. Even today, we are treated as though we were the garbage of the world, the filth of the earth. You will be taken advantage of when you follow Christ. Some people are going to. Some people are going to exploit you. I mean, go back to the closing portion of Matthew chapter 5, right in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. You know, it's that section we want to run past where Jesus says, when somebody forces you to go one mile, you go with them too. You, you do. I mean, he's basically using the, the thing of Roman soldiers could come along and demand that the Jews carry their pack and, and all of the, the weight that they're carrying, essentially you know, a mile. And he says... They're legally able to demand that you do that. He says, if they do, you serve them by carrying their stuff two miles. What do you mean? We hate the Romans. We don't want to carry their, their packs and their weapons for them. We don't want to carry at the minimum. And you're saying to do double that. You know, and he goes on to just say all these things that we should be willing to do for others and do for those who mistreat us. It just sounds like such an impossible standard because, you know, he says, if somebody comes and Ask for your coat. Give him your shirt as well. When somebody asks something from you, you give it and don't demand anything in return. I'm telling you, I've read that passage more times than I could count. And every time I read it, I think, how are we supposed to do this? Won't we get taken advantage of? And the answer is yes, sometimes you will. Sometimes you'll be taken advantage of as you serve Jesus. And it's actually okay. It's okay that sometimes we seem to lose in the transaction. If you make the choice on the front end, I'm going to be your servant. Whether I like you or dislike you, whether you're good to me or you're not good to me, if I choose to be your servant, suddenly you don't have any power to manipulate me. You may take advantage of me, but you can't control me because I've chosen to serve you. Do you see the power in that? It takes a lot of the sting out. You're not controlling me. You may ask more from me than you really deserve to be able to ask. But because Jesus is my Lord, I can give freely. I can serve freely without worrying about keeping score or worrying if I'm going to get anything in return. I know who's keeping score. And I know how he rewards and and remembers. And so you don't have any power to, to hurt me in that. St. Francis in, uh, in the book, The Little Flowers of St. Francis, said this, Above all the graces and gifts of the Holy Spirit, which Christ gives to his friends, is that of conquering oneself, that's another way of saying crucifying the flesh, and of willingly enduring sufferings, insults, humiliation, and hardships for the love of Christ. By doing those things, the flesh is being put to death. Okay, that's five Pretty heavy truths about what it means to be a true servant in the mold that Christ gave us. Now what I want to do over just a few minutes is list for you seven different ways from the scriptures that we specifically live a life of service. And this is actually the good news part of the message. 
I don't think you're going to hear this list and go, oh my goodness, I'm such a failure. There's so many things I need to start doing. I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised as we go through this list to realize that there are some ways from the scriptures that we're called to serve others that you may not even realize that you're actively serving. So let's just run down these. I want you to take note of a couple of things. Take note of what it is that you feel like you're already doing well and where it is that there are some things really lacking. And just make some little notes out to the side. Where where do you need to go to work and where are you already practicing these? So seven practical expressions of service. The first one is this, the service of small things. Dr. Luke tells us in Acts 9.39 in the whole encounter where um, Peter had gotten uh, word through the believers about a very godly woman in Joppa who had just died and just what a tragic thing it was because she was just such a godly woman. Uh, Sometimes she's known as Tabitha at other times as Dorcas. But uh, she just had such a servant's heart, caring for the poor. Uh, she winds up being raised from the dead. The Lord raised her through Peter. But in describing her, it says, The room was filled with widows who were weeping and, and showing Peter the coats and other clothes that Dorcas had made for them. Dorcas becomes for us a picture of just the life of service through the little things. She wasn't somebody who was you know well known because she had ever been on platform or in the spotlight doing great things for God she just loved the poor and cared for people and the thing that she knew how to do was make clothes and so she was just constantly making coats and things taking care of those who were in need and it's interesting that that was so noted of her that when she died people immediately set out to another town to find Peter to say if somebody deserved a touch from God, it was this woman because of these little acts of service. And when I read that passage, I'm reminded of my mama Mac, my mother's mother. We were so close when I was growing up. She's been with the Lord now for more than 20 years. But I'm telling you, she was like a second mother for me. And I remember through her late 70s and 80s and into her 90s when she began to slow down more and more, wasn't able to be out doing all that she used to do. She still just had such a deep love for God and for people, but it wasn't like she could... She used to, to you know, go and be with people out in the world, but she just got to where she wasn't physically able to do that as much. And so the thing that she settled on doing through the last decade or two of her life was she would just crochet nonstop. If she wasn't asleep, she was crocheting all the time. If somebody was having a baby, she was making booties. She was making hats. She was making... Blanket. She was always, I mean, and that's just such a small thing, and she was never making a big deal about that. But, you know, it was just anytime you saw her, like, you know, what are you making today? And who are you making that for? It was never to sell. And she never had two nickels to rub together. You know, she lived in government housing. But she wasn't doing any of that for personal profit. She's just always just slowly at it, making something to give away to somebody in need. And I I just think about that. And I think, you know, in the eyes of the world, her life was so small and insignificant. And yet in the eyes of God, every stitch that she made was a way of just actively loving God by serving somebody else, by just making something small for them. There's no deed so small done in service to others that it ever fails to be noticed by God. God loves when we serve through the small things. So whether it's things that you make and give away or just little, the little bitty things. Knowing that a friend or, or a neighbor has got you know, something going on today and you just pitch in by saying, hey, how about letting me 
drop your kid at school this morning or pick them up from practice this afternoon or going over and cutting a yard or knowing that somebody's been sick or there's been a surgery in the family and you, you know, cook a dish and take to them. Little things that you think in the grand scheme, what difference does it make? It makes a difference. It matters. The service of little things. Second thing, the service, this is one you wouldn't think of probably. The service of guarding the reputations of others. Paul said in Titus 3, speak no evil about anyone. Do you realize that we actually, in a very real sense, serve others when we refuse to gossip about them and when we refuse to take part in, in any shape or form, other people gossiping about them? We, we serve them. We honor them. We're saying we, we care too much about them to ever take part in anything that would tear them down. We live to build others up, not to tear them down. So it's serving them when we refuse to take part in that. A third form of service is the service of hospitality. Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 9, Cheerfully share your home with those who need a meal or a place to stay. I want to tell you, there is a desperate need today. For Christians to embrace this kind of lifestyle, this kind of perspective that says my home and my table become two primary gifts and opportunities for me to serve and make a difference in the world. It's a cultural shift. And it's happened in my lifetime. We've all seen it, haven't we? I mean, I know if you're, especially if you're 40 or above, you've watched this. It may be that some are so young that you can't remember a time when, but I mean... I just feel like if you're at least 40 or above, you just have to remember how different life used to be. I mean, you remember how much of life was spent on the porch or around the table with with neighbors or people that you hadn't planned a get together with. They just they knew they were welcome in your home or you were quick to offer invitations. I mean, Sunday was a prime example. I, I remember my grandparents on the other side we we'd go see them a lot of times on sunday afternoons after church and it was just always kind of entertaining to see they lived as far out in the country as as you could imagine they lived miles outside of a little bitty town but you had to go to the end of a mile long dirt road to get to their house closest neighbor was a half mile away so nobody i mean jesus doesn't just stumble on where they lived it, nobody just stumbles on that spot and yet there wasn't hardly a sunday that would go by that you wouldn't have somebody just pull up in their yard and park under the pecan tree and just tootle on up to the front porch and there'd be a folding chair another folding chair pulled out and just sit on the porch and just enjoy each other's company that was a better time wasn't it just when people knew that they were welcome that this house was a welcoming home. Whether it was for a meal or just to visit and catch up on a Sunday afternoon. We desperately need in our time to reclaim that kind of perspective. That our home isn't a place to be protected. Our home is a tool for ministry. Opening my home means I'm opening my life to you. You come in and spend time in my home. I want to get to know you. Letting the meal table, letting a bed in your home be a place that others are welcome. That just speaks volumes. It actually speaks more today than it did decades ago because so few people are willing to do it. That's not how we live today at all, is it? I mean, you know what the norm is today. We've all got fences and garage doors and we look like Batman whipping into the Batcave and, you know, the... 
thing goes down and nobody knows who that man was who went in the Batcave. It's just, that's how we live. And it's like, when I'm here, I want to be protected from the world. We've got to fight against that. It is a way of actively loving and serving God to use our homes and our dinner tables as an opportunity to express love and serving others, feeding them and welcoming them. Four, the service of common courtesy. That's one that probably wasn't on the tip of your tongue. And yet it's very important. Paul said, be gentle and polite to all people. We've got to be careful that we never fall into the trap of neglecting the rituals of relationship which declare the value of others. And you have countless opportunities every day to do this. There's a slow drift where we're getting worse at this. Where we're, we're letting go of the, the ways of expressing courtesy that declare the value of others. And some people do it in the name of just being real. Just keeping it real. And they miss the point. I'll give you a silly example, and it's one that you've probably witnessed. In our common encounters, our casual encounters, the thing that today, in our culture, that we most frequently will say when we pass is, Hey, how are you doing? In some shape or form, that's what we say, right? How's it going? How are you doing? And it's funny how much we'll stress over those kinds of situations. And how many times you'll hear people just kind of getting in a twist over that. Why do they even ask how I'm doing? They don't care how I'm doing. Why do they even ask that question? They don't care how I'm doing. It's hypocritical that they would even say that when they're not even pausing to listen to the answer. Okay, can I clear this up for some of us? It is not hypocritical in American culture when you want to simply acknowledge another person and be pleasant with them. To nod and say, how are you doing today? No. They do not want to hear a verbal account of when your last headache was or how regular you've been with your BMs this week. No, that's not what they're asking. They don't want to know how you're doing in that regard. But they are trying to honor you and simply say, I'm glad to see you today. I'm glad you're here. And by just nodding and saying, how are you doing? They're implying, I hope you're doing well. Now, I get it. In that moment, when somebody's asking, how are you doing, the super literalists among us are going, well, I need to give an honest answer to that question, and I'm not doing well. How should I answer? You know what? You don't have to lie. If you're having a bad day, it's okay to say, I'm struggling, but I'm making it by the grace of God. Or it's okay to say, I'm blessed. You know, on your worst day, you're blessed. And sometimes we just need to declare that as a statement of our faith. How are you doing today? I am blessed today because God is good. That is a fair response. And that may be kind of code for I'm struggling, but I'm holding on to the fact that God is good. The little things that we do that show common courtesy to extend a hand, to express warmth, to say the little things, yes, ma'am, yes, sir. I mean, what, what do we do when we use those expressions? I know half the world thinks, oh, it's just you dumb Southerners that want to tack that on there. That's old school. I don't care what you call it. It honors and elevates the other person, doesn't it? Every time we say, sir and ma'am, I, I go out of my way. I will say, 
if I'm in a setting where somebody's taking care of me in the, in the window of the fast food place, going through the drive-through, or or making my change in the grocery store, or whatever, when they're in a position where, sort of by definition, they are there to serve me, I go out of my way to say sir and ma'am to them to just seek to elevate them in that situation. Little things that honor them are ways for Christians to serve others. Elevating others. Thank you. Expressions of gratitude spoken and written. Boy, that one's going out, isn't it? The written thank yous. Just extending politeness and common courtesy. It's not hypocrisy. It's Christianity well expressed. So never let go of that. Number five. The service of listening to others. James said in James 1.19, Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. It has been said, and rightly so, that the first act of service that we owe each other within the body is to simply listen to each other well. There's a lot of truth in that, isn't there? One of the best ways we can serve each other is just hear each other. I mean, really listen and hear each other. And some of us aren't good at it. We're so desperate to be heard. It serves others to shut up and listen up. Which isn't my nature, as you can tell. I like to talk. And it's a service to zip it and to truly listen. And not to be postulating what to say next or, or, you know, here's the three-step answer to your problem. No. You thinking that you have the answer a lot of times is going to get in the way of listening well. Just listen. It honors the other person for you to not have to fix them, just to listen. The world isn't looking to be fixed. It's just desperate to be heard and understood. It serves others when we listen to them. Number six, the service of bearing the burdens of others. Paul said in Galatians 6-2, By helping each other with your troubles, you truly obey the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? That's it. The law of Christ is quite simply to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Paul said, well, here's a huge way that you live that out. You bear each other's burdens. You help each other with your troubles. Of course, the first thing you do in helping each other with your troubles is hear what another person's going through. Hear what they're feeling. But sometimes they need more than a listening ear. Sometimes they need somebody who'll say, well, you know what? I'll be glad to come help you with it. Tell me how I can help you. Tell me what you need right now. I want to help you get through this. And actually getting in and helping them work through the hard stuff. And then the seventh one. This is the one you expected. The service of using my time and talents to advance the kingdom of God. In a variety of different ways. In 1 Peter 4, Peter said, God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. It's a great reminder that within the body, everybody ought to be serving. You know, the mark of great churches is not their worship style. It's not the charisma of their pastors. It's not the great buildings that they're in. The mark of great churches is that across the board, people are willing to serve. The the churches that struggle and just get by are the typical churches where 10 to 20% of the people have to do 80 to 90% of the serving, literally. 
And so they're exhausted all the time. And you've got about 80 or, or so percent of the people who are just spectators. They just come and go. They drop in and hear a sermon and sing some songs and say some prayers and, and go back home. And they come back the next week for more of it. The mark of a great church is that more and more people cease to be consumers and seek to be participants who serve and give something away. Now, it's interesting, Peter, as well as Paul in his letter to the Corinthians, they reference the importance of using your spiritual gifts to serve others. Peter talks about it in real broad terms, that some of you have gifts that are more about what you say and communicate, and others of you are just more about rolling up your sleeves and getting in there and getting hands-on doing stuff. And that's probably, for most of us, about the level that we need to take it. Now, I love studying spiritual gifts and have taught on it countless times. And, ironic thing, the longer that I've studied the gifts, the more I have become convinced that while it's important that you understand something about your gifting and how to operate in that, that's really not the driving issue in where you serve most of the time. You need to know how to exercise the gifts that you've been given. But what I have found is it, it becomes, for many people, just the stumbling block that trips people up. Well, I just don't know where I'm supposed to be serving. I don't, I don't know what my gifts are, and I just don't know where I ought to be serving. We just need to get over it and serve. I mean, I'll give you a list right now. I see Sabrina back here. There's never a week that goes by that Sabrina doesn't need more people to volunteer in preschool ministry. Lynn here... They, we're never at a point where we've got our roster filled out in children's ministry. We always need people in a variety of ways. We're always in need of, of host homes and small group leaders. I mean, there's a list of, of ways to serve. And quite honestly, I don't even care what your spiritual gifts are for half the needs that we've got. For a lot of these things, we just need willing hearts. It just boils down to that. All kinds of spiritual gifts can be effective in a variety of different ways. Now, when it comes down to it, are there some specialized areas that, you know, we're not going to rotate around? Absolutely. Next week, Tony's going to be leading worship. We're not going to rotate that through. I assure you, I will not be on the keys next week. I will not have a microphone alive in front of my mouth when we're singing next week. There are some things where we're going to be real careful to let the gifts match the role. But for most of the things that need to get done, we just need... Willing hands and hearts to, to get after it. There's so much that's great about Freedom Church. But the future of our church and how effective we are, more than anything else, is just going to be tied to how willing we are to just, as a church, be just people who are willing to serve. You just tell me what we need to do and I'll jump in and do my part. The more of us that are willing to do that, the more this church is going to be a part of the unstoppable force that's changing the world. Do you agree with that? That's a fact. I want to ask you to just take a moment. I'm done. Take a moment and look back over your list. Those last seven things right now. You've got an outline. If you've got an outline, take a quick look at it. And I, I sit on the front end, kind of mark it up. Where are you doing well? It's okay to just acknowledge, all right, I'm, I'm kind of nailing these two or three right here. What are, the, what are the ways of serving that you're doing well? And then ask yourself the other question. If there were one or two things on that list of seven that you really need to give some, some thought and, and effort toward addressing, what would it be? Is it that you need to find a way to serve in the church? Is it 
that you need to start using your home and your table more? I mean, what, what is it that you need to work on? And with God's help, would you commit today to actually do something about that and not just go, yeah, one day I need to get around to addressing that. Would you be willing to actively address that? Would you bow together with me as we go to the Lord in prayer? Jesus, you are so good and you're so much more than just the one who came and purchased our salvation. You become the embodiment of everything that is right and good. Thank you that when you came to earth, I mean, you, you could have done anything you wanted to. And yet you came and declared that you were not here to be served. You're the God who deserves to be served. And yet you came here to serve and to give your life away. By our natures, we don't want to do that. We do not want to follow your example. And yet there is something stirring in us that wants very much to follow your example. We realize that's your spirit. We, we don't just naturally want that. Thank you for the work of your spirit in us that convicts us and calls us to lives of self-sacrifice and service to others. I pray that right now you would just impress on our hearts ways that we need to begin to serve others, serve our families, serve our neighbors, serve in the church. Holy Spirit, would you speak in this time? Why don't you just in your heart ask God to show you at least one tangible way that you need to begin living this out more faithfully in your life? And would you ask God to just pour into you the grace and desire to do that very thing? Lord, thank you for the promise of your word that it is you, it is your spirit in us who works both to will and to do what you desire. Stir up the desire in us and give us the follow through in that. Help us to, to serve others and to serve you in the process more faithfully. We thank you for the privilege of doing that and we offer ourselves to you again with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen.